0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas. The new podcast from the anti-hunger organization, Share Our Strength. Listen at strength.org passion.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
3: Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. This is a show where brilliant women in the food world share stories about their lives and careers that provide lessons and inspiration for anyone looking to see it in any industry. Today, I am ecstatic to have Camilla Marcus with me. Why am I ecstatic? Because... I admire her ability to do multiple things at once. Right now, she is an angel investor, and she is also the co-founder of Tech Table, which is a platform that investigates the intersection of hospitality and technology. But she has also simultaneously gone to the International Culinary Center um, to get a degree, and got her first job in food at Delanima. Another twin was when she got a GD and an MBA, and then was also working on the development of River Park. So suffice it to say, Camilla is a person with enormous amount of energy and enthusiasm, smarts, and a passion for the food world. So welcome, Camilla. So thrilled to be here. So you are incredibly educated. Um, you have more degrees than almost anybody that I know. And you've applied them in the business world, along with your passion, in what I think is an incredibly interesting way. I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the real estate development that you were doing, um, both when you were working in Los Angeles for um, CIM, or is it called CIM? CIM. (laughs) CIM? Most people call it CIM. (laughs) And then later you were working with the Union Square Hospitality Group. And I, I think that lots of people know what chefs do. They know what you know, uh, PR people do, but they don't know a whole lot of the behind the scenes about the business development and the real estate. So I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
4: so it's funny. I used to always say it was the invisible work. The day that you see something open and you enjoy your first coffee at a restaurant or a cafe, you know, and take that first bite. Um, you know, the work that I was doing was way long gone. Uh, and so core to the business, but something that I think really goes uh, unnoticed and a little under the radar, um, which is actually one of the reasons I went into it, I think I realized very early on, especially at Del Anima. I mean, I think that showed me more than anything, location, 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 mm-hmm. which is what you hear all the time. And really, you you live and die in
3: this business on your real estate, not just from a- OK, wait. So I know that that's true, but I want to know so much more. First of all, <laughs> uh, which locations are best? So.
4: It really all depends on the business. I mean, I always say to people, it it's kind of like dating. It all depends on context and what you're trying to do and who your audience is, what you're trying to communicate, what your brand is. So, you know, for Delanima, it was really a neighborhood Italian restaurant that was your cheers and the idea was that you ate there multiple times a day. So it didn't need to be a corner. It you know, didn't need to be massive. It didn't have to have neon signage. You know, it was meant to be sort of discoverable, but close to a ton of residential, which is why it's on the west side. You know, we're sitting in Roberta, as I've said before in my I actually taught a class at Journey in the, the very early days of the concept. And one of the things I was saying is if you really want to be a destination, I personally think you really have to be big you know, if you're really going to put a neighborhood on the map and you want someone to travel and to experience what you're giving them, first of all, it has to be a really full experience. People don't come to Roberta's for 20 minutes to grab and go. They come here to be here, to enjoy what, you know, this eclectic, um, you know, immensely inspiring space. But the other element of it is it's big. It takes up almost a full city block. And for me, that communicates you're going to be safe here. There's sort of safety in numbers, safety in size. So you're not coming all the way out here for a thousand five hundred square foot, you know, little coffee shop. You're really coming here to spend the day. And they've made a statement and an investment to say, you know what, you're gonna be safe here. I mean obviously Bushwick has changed tremendously <laughs> since Robertus came here. Right. There's certainly a big part of it. Hometown barbecue is the same thing. You know, they really got people to come to Red Hook. It's a full city block, and it's really meant to be a full experience. So I always say it really depends. You have to start with knowing who you are, what your brand is, what you're trying to communicate. And most importantly, who's your who's your fanatics? Who are your fanatics? And the... Biggest thing for me is when people say, oh, we're for everyone, I kind of wipe my hands and go, (laughs) I'm not working with you. Well, also, no one's for everyone. You hope that it broadens, but if you're not speaking to a clear audience, then your message probably
3: isn't clear, too. And so your job in real estate was to draw out from the clients or the people that you were working with what exactly they were, who they were who their passionate audience was. And then the hard work begins, like, what do you do as a, you know, real estate (laughs) guru? I don't
4: know about groove, but I think, you know, it depends on sort of your job. So at CIM, it was, we're really, you know, I got very lucky. About two months before I joined, they had just closed a massive fund, and the big effort was making a mark in New York. They had never invested or developed in New York, and they were gangbusters about the area. Thankfully, I came from New York. I had a real passion, especially for retail in New York. And I wanted to travel because all my friends were still here. (laughs) So I kind of raised my hand and said, I'll do that. Um, So I worked a lot on the hotel projects and the retail. And for them, it was much more, we want to make an imprint. What do you think? So I could say, hey, these are emerging retail neighborhoods. Madison Square Park was a great example. 225 Fifth was one of my first investments that I made. Um, at the time, you know, Italy had just opened, Lego had just signed that lease, which now you know, seems like a no-brainer, and you know, that whole area was really starting to percolate. Now we don't see that as a developing neighborhood, but five, ten years ago, it was barely on the map, especially for high street retail.
3: Right. So to be good at real estate, you need some instinct for what's next or what's upcoming or, or where Absolutely. the value is, maybe, because you well, might want to have um, you know, a gold standard location and know what that's worth
4: to you. For sure. And I was going to say, as an investor, that's what you need, for the most part, because there aren't a lot of returns if you're buying, you know, a showpiece. Like if you bought the Empire State Building, probably not going to make a return because it's already at its peak value. There's nowhere else to go. So as an investor, you always look for what's next because you're trying to create value and you're trying to add value to then obviously get a financial return. For USHU, it was a little bit um, of the flip side, which is interesting Why I wanted to go to CIM first was to be able to think like a landlord, think like an investor and understand their perspective, Mm -hmm. and then bring that added value to a tenant, which is, hey, let's find the intersection of what we need, what we want, and what a landlord needs and what a landlord wants. Plus, there's all those relationships that are embedded, which is a big element of it, too. So at USHG, it was much more... So which is just for listeners, if you don't know, that's Danny
3: Meyer's company, Union Square
4: Hospitality (laughs) Group. (laughs) So for them, it was really saying, okay all the chefs and partners and the concepts and the ideas for growth, you know, let's create a business plan for each one. And say, OK, you know, for example, Union Square Cafe was relocating. Um, actually, my Such first an <laughs>
3: exciting project, and they've just opened in New York, route and apropos uh, timing, it is.
4: So my first day, they sort of read me into the, the book, so to speak. And Danny said, you know, after 30 years, uh, we're going to have to move, we can't make the lease work. And I really think I actually maybe cried, and I'm really not a crier. And I kind of <laughs> took a moment, and I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't see that coming. you know. And that was sort of amazing, because you take a heritage, but really in a new business plan, and say, okay, what should stay the same? What are the non-negotiables of the space and the brand and the spirit and the community? And and what can change? So what we decided early on was it had to be, <laughs> I used to tease Danny, had to be seven, seven minutes walking from Union Square proper from the park <laughs> in heels, which is how I did our property tours. And I, you know, so it was really could go up as far as Madison Square Park, really not um, further down past uh, Washington Square Park. You know, and again, that was a limitation. It was, we're Union Square. We believe in this neighborhood. We helped develop it, put it on the map. Right. You know, many, many years ago. Again, now it's a foregone conclusion that Union Square is a, a bustling Center neighborhood, so you know, we decided it had to have a certain frontage. You know, the entrance couldn't be on a major avenue. It meant had to really be discoverable. You know, ideally multi-level because that's what Union Square Cafe was so known for. So we had sort of a rubric that we developed together as a team to say, okay, these are the non-negotiables. This is our community. This is what we want to say. Now let's go find it. And, and part of it was also finding a partner that would be someone long-term, a landlord that would be a long-term, um, liaison for us because, you know, Danny didn't want to move it again, you know, <laughs> hopefully in the next couple of decades. So that's really how it goes. I think on the real estate side is it's a little bit like matchmaking, a little bit like dating. There's, there's certainly the hard skills of, you know, how much is it going to cost to build? What is the rent? You know, what are the financial obligations? But there's a little bit of that soft spot, too, is can I see that sign going up there? You know, part of it was, will the neon sign hang? Will it make sense there? And have you come that is- in, will you see the nooks and crannies and get that feeling? So it's funny because I think people see real estate, especially my role, as so financial and analytical. But it really is a lot about, you know, the hu- this is going to sound crazy, but the human spirit and, and so much more creative than that.
3: I love that. Uh- notion about the sign because in fact seeing the neon hanging on the corner it makes it feel like home immediately Mm -hmm. and i never thought that a sign would have so much meaning although i went to brown where semiotics was like the study of sign (laughs) symbols what everybody majored in but it uh (laughs) made such a difference and then again you go in and the nooks and crannies and the fact that they kept a staircase but at least you feel like you're not going to fall down because that Original Union Square staircase <laughs> to the second floor always struck me as a little dicey. <laughs> um, so, well, we were talking about the the soft spot, and one of the things that in, intrigues me about your um, trajectory is your your belief in signs. We're so talking about signs, and you know, there's some things that seem to have happened for a reason, and and you, uh, you graduated from school. And you applied to, I think, 20 jobs that you did not get. And that was a sign. Let's talk about what signs mean to you. And that was one, but there's probably others that have multiplied. And how do people look for signs?
4: So I'm I'm from Los Angeles, and I, <laughs> I always preface things with, I know this is very L.A., and it's just as who I am. Um, I'm very intuitive in that way. I really have always believed in trusting my gut. I'm very much lead, led by... Which is funny for someone who's always been in math and sort of more tangible, tactile um, jobs, I guess for the most part, um, but I'm actually very intuitive, very much believe in going with my gut and and I just think that you have to be open. I think that the road is always much more interesting when you're open to opportunities. A good example of that is actually when I interviewed at USHG um, a long time leader there had said so you know what's your five-year plan and i said well i can lie to you and make something up i could probably do that very quickly and, (laughs) and believably on the fly but i really don't have one i mean if you look at my background one thing has always led to another and it's always led to a really enriching path and so for me to limit myself by a written plan or preconceived notions or expectations for me will always limit the field of possibilities and i think it's when you're open to things that you couldn't possibly ever expect that the world becomes open. And I think more possibilities and dreams that you couldn't even fathom can appear.
3: But I, I'm intrigued in, uh, by your, your grit and by not being um, devastated by the amount of rejection <laughs> you faced. And so can, we, can you yeah. talk about that? And I believe that your theory is you give yourself 24 hours to wallow. You pick
4: yourself yes. up. I, you know, it's funny. No one, you know, no bones about it. Rejection hurts. And when you think you want something and you don't get it or it doesn't work out for whatever reason, whether that's professional or personal, um, it, it obviously hurts. It's in kills your ego, kills your soul. You obviously put a lot of time and effort into something. But I guess I always just believed, you know what, then it's just not meant to be. And that's not how it's meant to work out. And while I can't see it today, I know I will look back the way I've looked back on every year in my life and said, you know what, that sorted out the way it was meant to, meant to work out. And, you know, for example, in a job, when you don't get a job that you want, and yes, I interviewed with 20 private equity firms and the one that I ended up getting was CIM. It was such a perfect place for me. And looking back, all those places that I didn't get the job or someone wouldn't email me back or even offer me an interview, you know, you look back and you think, I wasn't a fit for them. And for whatever reason, they couldn't see my potential. That's not a place that you're going to grow. It's not a place where you're going to develop. So I think you really have to look at it from a bigger picture and sort of take the ego out of it, which is why I say I give myself really a day to sort of wallow, feel bad. But at the end of the day, that's just not the right path. Why do you want to bang a door that doesn't want to open for you? That doesn't mean you don't bang. You got to (laughs) bang as many doors as you possibly can. And you go for what you really want. But I also think that there's no singular path. I genuinely believe that in life. And so if you get so fixated on, I have to have this one job, it's the only place I will interview, it's the only place I ever want to go, You know, then when it doesn't work out, that really is soul crushing. So I think one of the reasons I've also always worked while I was in school or done projects while I was working is because I think the more optionality you have, the more that can't really take away your soul and can't be so devastating that you can't pick yourself back up because you know that there are multiple roads and multiple roads that can provide a lot of excitement and growth and that the ones that don't work are meant to not work for a reason and won't be the way, you know, won't be the path forward. But
3: I think to be able to deal with that, so to speak, you know, you have to have optionality for yourself. I love the notion that one of the reasons that you were doing these two things at once was to give yourself options because honestly it seems like doing one thing at once gives you an option but you're kind of covering your bases. <laughs> totally. And I think, you know, I'd like just hindsight's
4: 2020. 20. I don't know that that was instinctively my plan to start. You know, I always said I was so envious really of people who knew in college immediately. I, you know, I meant to be a doctor. A lot of my college roommates actually are doctors. You know, and I'm dying to be a lawyer. You know, when I did a summer associate program um, at Sullivan and Cromwell, when I turned down the job offer, I said to my boss, You know, you're one of my great mentors. I admire you more than anyone I've ever met. You are so passionate about this, and I see what you see, but I know that I don't feel that way. I want to feel that way. So I think I've always pursued multiple things, you know, even in college and undergrad, going abroad and studying art, which was my high school passion, um, you know, while I was in undergraduate business school, was a way to find out what speaks to me. So I think I always did multiple things at once because I never, I just wasn't blessed with that singular vision and that one passion of, you know, I was born to do
3: X. And it came I later. I just don't have that. We're just, well you just, <laughs> it, it, and, and you've moved through your career in a really interesting way because of that. Um, I'm curious whether because you've had mentors in so many different areas are there a couple of lessons from them that have really stuck with you that um, help you move as you move forward yeah for sure
4: um, I think you know from my my boss at Sullivan and Cromwell actually was the chairman of the firm I got randomly paired with him during tarp regulation you know he's featured in too big to fail he really is an immense luminary in our banking system and our financial institution as well as law. You know, he was the most humble, lovely person, the big joke. And in all the articles, he drives a Subaru. He's owned the same Subaru for 40 years. He's very proud of it. But more than that, he treated everyone with respect. You know, his assistant is one of his closest and dearest friends and has been with him for decades because of that. You know, really always treated people like equals. And, and again, his passion was explosive and contagious and couldn't be contained and I think it showed me that's what you want. And whether it takes trial and error, whether it takes decades, you never want to let go of that pursuit because everyone deserves to feel that way. And, Uh, you uh, know, sometimes the road is short. And for example, cooks, some cooks and chefs know from 14 years old, they're meant to do that. Like I said, I'm envious of those people (laughs) when the road is short to find that calling. Um, But seeking a calling and not just a job. I think is, you know, the most noble pursuit. And I think he, he really taught me that. And I think, you so know... So should
3: we, should we take... Yeah, um, sure. We're going to turn the mic over to you to read one of your favorite passages. So you have the mentors who inspire you, but you're also a reader of hardcover books, which I love, <laughs> being a visual person. I will never own a Kindle. Oh. And uh, so let's hear what inspires you. Sure. So... Um, I read
4: voraciously I and also watch a lot of television, which does not connect all that well. Um, but I really have a passion for nonfiction. I think that life is actually sometimes more interesting than fiction. It's hard to believe they're real. So I love reading memoirs and, and stories of people and their life, both professionally and personally. I have sort of an addiction to it. So my recent one, um, and my friends who know me, I have sort of an. Uh, unofficial book club. So we all share books. And as we read things, we share them. And my big one of last year, my my most favorite book is Shoe Dog. It's the memoir of Phil Knight. And what I love most about it is when I say it's the memoir of Phil Knight, 99% of people have no idea who he is. He is actually the creator and co-founder of Nike, um, which wasn't even named Nike for many years. So I pulled a passage from this, It again, was sort of had the largest impact for me in the last year and and again going back to my old boss at Sullivan and Cromwell, someone who no one really knows and yet is such a huge impact on our culture, on business and on brand and athletes around the world. I mean, his impact is so unbelievable and the fact that people don't know his name is equally intriguing to me. So here it goes. It seems wrong to call it a business. It seems wrong to throw all those hectic days and sleepless nights, all those magnificent triumphs and desperate struggles under that bland, generic banner, business. What we were doing felt like so much more. Each new day brought 50 new problems, 50 tough decisions that needed to be made right now, and we were always acutely aware that one rash move, one wrong decision could be the end. The margin for error was forever getting narrower, while the stakes were forever creeping higher, and none of us wavered in the belief that the stakes didn't mean money. For some, I realize business is an all-out pursuit of profits, period, full stop. But for us, business was no more about making money than being human is about making blood. Yes, the human body needs blood. It needs to manufacture red and white cells and platelets and redistribute them evenly, smoothly, to all the right places, on time or else. But that day-to-day business of the human body isn't our mission as human beings. It's a basic process that enables our higher aims, And life always strives to transcend the basic process of living. And at some point in the late 1970s, I did too. I redefined winning, expanded it beyond my original definition of not losing, of merely staying alive. That was no longer enough to sustain me or my company. We wanted, as all great businesses do, to create, to contribute, and we dare to say so out loud. When you make something, when you improve something, when you deliver something, when you add something new, or service to the lives of strangers, making them happier or healthier or safer or better. And when you do it all crisply and efficiently, smartly, the way everything should be done but so seldom is, you're participating more fully in the whole grand human drama. More simply than alive, you're helping others to live more fully. And if that's business, all right, call me a businessman. Maybe it will grow on me.
3: That gives me goosebumps. (laughs) And it is also so clearly aligned with the way you see your life and your business, that the merger of the business, but life itself. Absolutely. And, and with that, we're going to go to a commercial break, and we'll be back right after with Camilla Marcus and Speaking Broadly.
1: and stir big chefs big ideas the new podcast from the anti-hunger organization share our strength brings together your favorite chefs and amazing social innovators to discuss how food impacts almost every major issue you care about your health your environment and your children's ability to learn uplifting stories from chefs like michelin star winner jose andres people want our respect.
3: People don't want our dirty shoes and our old pens. People want us
0: to show up and show them that they really matter to us.
1: And Top Chef winner Brian Voltaggio.
0: Hunger has many different faces. You can walk down the street every day and see children playing in the playground. They're hungry. They don't know where they're going to get their next meal. They don't know if they're going to have dinner.
1: Can be heard at strength.org slash passion. You can help change the world by changing the way we think about food. Listen at strength.org slash passion that's strength.org slash passion.
3: Okay. This is Dana Cowan with Speaking Broadly. I'm here with my guest, Camilla Marcus, and we're talking about business and success. And let's move to some of the things you're working on now, which are incredibly exciting. I Secretly, and now that I'm telling this on radio, it's not secret at all. (laughs) I think the the idea of being an an angel investor is incredibly compelling because I love supporting um, people. I love supporting new businesses, and I love the act of discovery. And this is something that you have taken on. And I don't think that there are a lot of young women investors out there that you could even model yourself on. So tell me a little bit about the companies you're finding, how you decided to become an angel investor. Yeah, you know, what you said is super true.
4: And and I really take to heart, there's not a lot of young investors. And there's also not a lot of women investors, young or otherwise. Um, I'm not wholly sure why, and I sort of sit on my soapbox and try and drum up more. Um, you know, there's definitely strength in numbers and, and a community. Um, you know, it's interesting. The first investment I ever wanted to do, when I was at Delanima, um they had just signed the lease for Lartuzzi, and, you know, I was fresh out of college and investing in my, my own future in culinary school, um, definitely not cash flow positive, and... <laughs> I called my dad and I said, you know, will you give me a loan? I really want to invest in Lartuzi. This next project I know is going to knock it out of the park. They've just got such a special, you know, sense for hospitality. They're savvy. They've got a great team. And I know because I've worked with them. You know, this is how much each point is going to cost. I think I'd like to do like one or two, just something small to test it out. You know, my dad laughed at me hysterically on the phone. He goes, Yeah, right. You're 22 years old. You're basically bleeding cash. (laughs) You left business school to go to culinary school. Like, you must be crazy. (laughs) He goes, Literally, no bank would lend to you, and I'm not going to lend to you either. And I go, Okay, fair, fair, fair. Worst mistake. Lartusi is a great investment. And I ended up later investing in uh, their wine bar, Anfora, when I had, you know, finally cash flow and my own coffers (laughs) to draw from. Um, And I think since my dad has seen a passion and sort of looks back and goes, "Eh, I probably should have lent you the money.
3: (laughs) But also, I mean, just stopping with your dad there for a minute, so he put the brakes on there, and he actually tried to put the brakes on a couple of different things, which (laughs) um, you ignored and you adore him. So how how does that work out?
4: Um, You know, I think I always say to my friends, I think the best thing you can do is really love your parents for every bit of who they are. They're your parents. They love you, but you can't idolize them. They're humans. We're all human. They're imperfect. They have flaws. You know, both my parents are very self-made. They had absolutely nothing when they started. My dad worked four jobs to put my mom through college when they got married and saved every penny, you know, and did a ton of side work. He became a tax specialist so he could do people's taxes for money. So you know, he's more on the conservative end of things because of that. So I understand that he's never putting the brakes because he doesn't believe I can do it. And I think that's where the biggest difference comes from. Um, And when push comes to shove, when I've really wanted to do something, even if he's cautioned against it, the second I've chosen it, you know, he's in the boat with me and he's my biggest cheerleader. So I think he also taught me that you can be critical of something. You don't have to always agree and you can play devil's advocate, but as long as at the end of the day, you jump in the boat and you're all one team after the decision's made, that's really what matters. And that, you know, pushing back on someone isn't a negative. It just helps them think through it more clearly. So I think he always, you know, he comes from what he knows. And, you know, he's more traditional and which is ironic because also entrepreneurial in other ways. He started his own company, though, at 47, you know, after many years and a ton of savings. And, you know, it's been the best adventure of his whole life and certainly high risk. But he said no to the job offer four times. Wow. So, you know, he's That's a curious so mix of very entrepreneurial and risk taking, but in a very measured, calculated and, you know, a little bit more conservative way. So. So, yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely pushed back and, you know, challenged my and you my goals forward. and my trajectory. So. But then, you know, always jumped on board to cheer me on. So. So my first in- make that one, but. So my first investment ended up being Anfora. Um, later on, which again was just a tremendous learning experience. And I always say, I think first investment should be in what you know and with who you know, because at the very least, you know, say you lose your shirt and you lose the whole investment, at least you're doing it with sort of a pure heart. And I think it's a better way to learn and sort of get your feet wet versus something that you can't evaluate or people you really can't assess. Um, so, So that was my first. And you know, I started realizing I really had a passion for it. I love so how do you even find the deals yeah, so so some is really once you make the first or second and you really start sharing that that's what you're doing, you'd really be surprised at what comes out of the woodwork. It's kind of like when you raise your hand, you never know what comes your way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really one two is um really building relationships and friendships amongst the investing community mm-hmm. so you know at u s h g um crystal who runs bento box had just come on board um our head of marketing had just signed her up to do the websites and i met with her was so impressed with her business and she said you know i'm actually in tech stars and i wish we had more people like you because no one really knows the food and hospitality space you're obviously an investor you have a passion for this and i also have a very big soft spot for female entrepreneurs <laughs> um not exclusively so but very big soft spot um so I actually called up the head of program for TechStars and I said, "Are you looking for mentors? You know, I know you have Bento Box. I love what they're doing. If you're continuing continuing down this sort of hospitality industry as a you know as a track for what you're doing, I'd love to be part of it." So now I'm a mentor in residence for their classes, um, and through that have met you know a number of different people. Great example actually is Tech Table, our first summit. Um, I've been a admirer from afar of Joanne Wilson for some time. Both her and her husband, um, and you know, I actually knew a friend that had known her, and I said, "Do you think she might be interested in speaking at Tech Table? I'd love to get an investor's perspective. I think this industry doesn't hear often enough how people really evaluate these opportunities and what they're looking at the macro trends because they see things from such a bird's eye view that a lot of us can't appreciate in the trenches. It's hard to have both." And she said, "Sure, I'll introduce you." Um, You know, but, like, no guarantees. I have no idea. So, you know, it really was kind of a cold introduction. And so I came to her with our deck. We hit it off right away, and she's really become a mentor, you know, to me as both an entrepreneur and an investor, um, constantly with amazing insight and really welcomed me almost instantly. So she let me join her Gotham Gals Angel Network. So some of the deals come through that. Um, So I really think, again, if you – if you share what you're doing, you raise your hand, and you're not shy about sort of letting people know what your passions are.
3: I tend to get most deal flow that way. I, um, you know, I, I love your ability to cold call. I, mean, just, I am not shy. You are fearless. Uh, let's talk about nothing ventured, nothing gained, right?
4: So my mom used to say, "I'm not a mind reader, and if you don't ask for what you want, I will never give it to you."
3: Right. Or as my ex-boyfriend long ago said, "You don't ask, you don't get." That's concise. Easier to hear, harder to do. Uh, And so let's talk a little bit about Tech Table because I think you guys were ahead of the curve in expressing the incredible importance uh, of hospitality and technology working together so that we don't have inhuman interactions um, going forward and just understanding how important all that back end technology is, but how it you, it has to be translated.
4: Yeah, our you know, our tagline is high tech for high touch, and I think we it really came out of seeing and it's ironic, again, my first job at Dell Anima, part of what I helped them was sort of pinch hit for host reservations before open table even existed. So really knowing on a very deeply personal level how critical it is for technology to enter the space and you know, each of us of the founding team have worked in other businesses, not just food, not just hospitality. And I think we really saw so clearly other industries are just so far ahead as far as their technology integration. And with margins compressing every day, with real estate getting more expensive, labor costs obviously are rising. You know, the war for talent is ever pressing. Costs of goods sold are are difficult and rising. You know, with all of those dynamics, tech is more important than ever. You know, finding the right efficiencies in the right way without taking away the human touch is more critical than ever. And I so think what you-, you just couldn't ignore, you know, watching the
3: perfect storm. What do you think the most important new technology is available in the hospitality or the most transformative technology is right now? Um, I don't know about
4: is because... I think it is very much an inning one and two I think how technology interacts with you know the the team aspects so in human resources if you really look at that whole chunk of the business more often than not it's the largest driver of margins and health of a business it's one of the largest you know costs but more importantly on the on the flip side you're everything you live and die by your team you know Food is incredibly important. It's created by people. Mm -hmm. Environment and how you feel about a place, that's created by people. Mm -hmm. People are the core and center and heart and everything of this business. Again, both profits and financially, but also in the spirit of it. Um, You know, everything from hiring and, you know, attracting talent to retaining them, training and culture and development is more important than ever when people have endless cities to choose from and endless businesses. You know, they're going to want to work at a place that values them. Tech has a huge role in that. You know, this new wave of talent, they're younger, they're smarter, they've worked in different businesses, and they're choosing this, and they're on their phones. You know, that's something that 10 years ago wasn't the case. They want training and all that access digitally and mobily. And, you know, and even down to the nitty gritty of, you know, payroll and how you're you know, hired and onboarded and all those things. So much of that is still paper and pencil in this business. And I just don't think that that's going to be tenable going forward. And I think the new generation coming in that I continue to be unbelievably impressed and inspired by they're demanding
3: it. I think it's, Obviously, there's an overall big truth in what you're saying, but I also think that it's so true to who you are because you care so much about people, and people is how you've gotten everything you've (laughs) done done. Is that an English sentence? Um, So that's such a great segue to one of my favorite things I've learned from you, which is about the love language. And not love language as it pertains to romance, although you do have the most amazing husband who you've known since you were 19. So uh, your love language, in many ways, is obviously fully at work. But um, in business, can you talk about, first of all, what is the love language? And also... How important is it to use those skills in business? Yeah,
4: so you mean what is the language
3: what is it like yeah. the flag. So
4: the, the Love Languages is this um sort of heuristics test, any ideas. There are five love languages. Certainly everyone wants all five, but you naturally prefer them in a certain order and that's just the nature of, you know, being human. Um so it's quality time, touch, gifts, acts of service, and um Oh, I should have remembered the last one. Do you remember the last one? I can't remember the last one. Well, I was just looking at it. It'll come to me. Um, so the idea is, you know, you have to categorize them and put a priority on them. And, you know, I always say it's important in relationships as well as... T-
3: words of affirmation. Oh,
4: words of a- <laughs> By the way, that's my least impactful, <laughs> which is why that was fit. That was actually a, uh, that a was very revealing. Freudian slip. Um, so... So it's interesting because the idea for me is it's not about right or wrong. There's no right order. There's no wrong order. But if you can really unearth that, you know, even in a team dynamic, I think it helps people clarify both for themselves and face sort of what do you want and what makes you feel good in your day? How do you receive praise? How do you receive feedback? How do you receive affection and attention and yes, love, Um, but the key is that, you, you know, you end up giving that attention and affection the way you want to receive it, but it's really the wrong paradigm. You should be giving it the way the other person wants to receive it. So just by unearthing it, I think there's so many more conversations that come out of it and such a greater awareness. Again, even amongst teams, you know, if you're a boss, for example, and you have someone on your team, by knowing that they really are impacted by words of affirmation, you know, I'll give it, put myself as that example. I am not that impacted by that. I much more prefer sort of tokens, so even if it's a card or a coffee in the morning, that sort of means more to me than someone saying you did a great job. So I may not do that to someone else, but they may need to hear that. And so again, I think reorienting and sort of being in service of someone else rather than for yourself, um, you know, it's just hugely important. I think illuminates, you know, much better ways of you know creating a positive environment and helping people feel valued. I think it just it sounds so simple and when you take it you kind of laugh and you're thinking oh but I want all of them and when you see the
3: order I think every person has that aha
4: moment I know you took it
3: I did I took it I was inspired by you and, and uh, it was very revealing because among the five there are definitely ones that are much more important to me and I will be much happier if the people I'm working with mm-hmm. uh, know that about me and I w- will be able to make them happier because that's my goal always right I believe that my role as a leader is to be in service of the team, right? Because if I'm not doing a good job, then they really can't do their job. And if I'm not speaking to them in the way that matters exactly to them, then I'm missing out on some great potential. So I enjoyed taking it. And um, it was super simple and very intuitive and not like some of those other tests where they they hurt my brain because I I can never decide. I felt very decisive about Um, the hierarchy of my love languages.
4: Well, and the whole point of the test, too, is to do it from your gut. So they tell you, you know, don't read it, don't sit and ruminate, just sort of answer, because it's much more about instinctual preference, not, you know, deep thought of, well, do I really want to think about acts (laughs) of service? It's just, yeah, do you want someone to, (laughs) you know, hold the door open for you? Things like that. So,
3: um, well, I would love to pay it forward and... I'm sure that you, you love women entrepreneurs. You, uh, you know, are a very powerful one yourself. And I wonder if there is a woman that you would like to nominate into the hall of deems, a woman who you think, um, you know, inspires others. Yeah, I actually,
4: (laughs) I thought about this for a long time. This is such a hard, really a hard, um, one to answer because I wish I could nominate a million and every woman in my life both personally and professionally, and sometimes both um, inspire so, so, so much. Um, I had a hard time <laughs> figuring this one out. You can you know, nominate five. Don't be shy. All right, I've got a few. Joanne Wilson for sure would be one. Um, I owe her an immense debt of gratitude for not only believing in Tech Table, but me and helping me in
3: my investing career. Actually, and, one is. And she, she is an, an investor and um, a really smart investor. Oh, yes.
4: And really put investing in food, I think, in such a legitimate space in the industry in a way that people didn't think that, you know, you could be a career investor and also have a food portfolio. She really changed that perspective, I think, as a whole. So Robin Sue Fisher, um, the creator of Smitten Ice Cream, she's also the inventor of the burr machine, which she created, built and patented along with an engineer. Um, She spoke at Tech Table and really you know she's a mom she's a wife by the way so is joanne you know just for such a full professional and personal life and really for me robin sue is sky's the limit the limitations are only what you put on yourself and you know to be a true inventor and have something patented and create this incredible hospitality experience and have such a deep passion for local food and creating community i mean i am a total fangirl of hers okay. And she's lovely what's a Burr. So uh, her, so Smitten machine. Ice Cream, um, you can see it on www.techtablesummit.com, small plug. All of the videos from our summits are up there, and her talk is up there as well. So Smitten Ice Cream is made to order ice cream. So she puts local organic ingredients, very high-quality ingredients, into this machine that she patented that um, freezes it to order. So it's single-serve, made in front of you, with the fresh ingredients. And the burr machine
3: is what she calls the single-serve machine that
4: she created. Um,
3: I knew it wasn't um, related to the burr grinder, which I'm (laughs) quite a fan (laughs) of because I like perfectly ground coffee. No.
4: Okay, great. Um, You know, and the other two for me, I mean, I love Ina Garten. I think, you know, making food so accessible and having everyone take away the fear from cooking. I'm like one of my only friends that really cooks and... So I love anyone who can make it accessible and fun. And again, you know, has we all love Jeffrey, I'm sure from afar, and you know, just such a such <laughs> a lovely Ina's life. Husband. I think so so true to herself. Um, I also I remember a long time ago someone said, "Well, you can't stay nice and be successful in business." And I think for me, all of these women, but Ina too, really resembles. Um, you can be humble and kind and thoughtful. Every bit of who you want to wake up. To yourself as In the morning And have An enormous empire So I just She's like My paradigm um, And then I have a huge admiration From afar For Nancy Silverton I mean L.A. has emerged As such an interesting Food city But growing up That was not the case And I credit Nancy Hugely for putting My hometown On the map And you know is a total creative genius in my mind so that's sort of my hometown hero of bringing you know food and and the world attention on culinary creativity in Los Angeles
3: so Nancy Silverton who is an extraordinary chef and she uh was at Campanile and then um she's now we cried when that closed it's like <laughs> my family's sunday brunch spot since i was a child And it's an extraordinary space. It was amazing when they were there, and Republik, which is there now, is also an extraordinary restaurant. Uh, But Nancy went on to open Austria, Mozza, and... And that corner in Los Angeles, you know, you talk about real estate no one
4: ate food around there. I mean, it was, hot, you know, Melrose and Highland was like nothing. I mean, he was even past the tattoo parlors and piercing parlors. <laughs> I mean, Pink's really hot dogs has been there for a long time, but is sort of an old relic. Um, but again, they bought a corner. They really made a statement and they had multiple concepts. I think from a real estate play that was genius. I think they put the neighborhood completely on the map from a wasteland. And, you know, proof's in the pudding. John and Vinny's, you know, they've opened Petit Toit and Toit across, you know, Caddy Corner and the strip mall. So, again, I think Nancy, both culinary and creative, but also from a business and real estate standpoint, you know, I think that set L.A. really on fire that any
3: neighborhood's fair game.
4: And that was not the case when I was growing up.
3: I, and uh, every time I go to L.A., I actually go by there and I got to see Nancy last time she's still in the restaurants she's still really passionate she's still figuring out the perfect recipes and I love that her passion hasn't dimmed and that she just keeps at it with tremendous joy and mentors um, so many uh, so many others so um, with that I'm happy to have had camilla marcus here to share her tremendous experience um to learn more about her camilla where should we send people techtable.com <laughs> um so
4: www.techtablesummit.com um i also have a consulting business with two powerhouse women uh danielle freeman and olivia young www. Pound for dot Oh
3: my gosh, you guys are pound for pound the most powerful
4: <laughs> people out there. Olivia P- is P- a tremendous boxer. So, yes. you know, in, in homage to her new business, Box and Flow, uh, we named it Pound for Pound. Um, and then I guess
3: so it's underscore Camilla Ruth underscore is my social handle. And to follow me, Dana Cowan, you can find me at um, FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter, as well as at Speaking Broadly. All of my shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find them on iTunes and Stitcher. And I'd love to get your feedback, uh, people that you would love to hear on my show. And thanks to my engineer, David Tadashore, who I now know how to pronounce his last name so I can, you know, bully through and say the whole thing. And thank you, listeners. Come back next week, Wednesday noon. Have a great day.